Good morning. Uh, this morning we're continuing with our series on the heavenlies uh, as depicted in Ephesians. Uh, this is part of a series um, of sermons that the city church pastors are doing. It, if you came from North Science Park Road, you may have noticed that uh, uh, Grace Lutheran had Ephesians 1 listed on their marquee. And I know that there's a number of other evangelical churches in town that are, that are also doing this. Just to uh, review uh, some of what we talked about last week, uh, the heavenlies, uh, what we talked about last week was the context, the model, and the point. The context is that Ephesians is pretty much Paul's last will and testament to the Ephesians. He probably uh, wrote this uh, from Rome uh, near the end of his life. If you if you look in Acts tw- 19 and 20, uh, you see some of his last uh, interactions with the Ephesians. The uh, the model uh, we understand things via models. The heavenlies is is one such model. It's a, it's an odd sort of word. How many times in normal conversation do you say, "Oh, well, just the other day in the heavenlies"? Um, it's it's not the sort of thing that we refer to. The uh, what the word just really means is the heavens, um, the 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 realm where God is, the place where God is, and of course, from the biblical point of view. The place where God is, is everywhere. In other words, there's not, you know, Dante had like hell and earth and then heaven uh, in in his his literary work, if if you ever looked at uh, his stuff in in, uh, high school or college. Uh, That's not the biblical point of view. The biblical point of view is heaven is where God is and God is everywhere. And that what it happens in the heavenlies is actually ultimate reality. Why does these, why does the sun come up every morning? Well, some of you could probably give the equations that describe the orbital mechanics and all that sort of thing. That's not why the sun comes up. The reason the sun comes up is that God in the heavenlies wills it. In fact, that's why every, each one of the atoms and, and molecules that make up our bodies uh, exist. That's why they continue operating, is because God in the heavenlies wills it. So the heavenlies depicts ultimate reality. The point was that God has given us all blessings, all good things in the heavenlies. So from the point of view of ultimate reality, we are the heirs of all good things. Kind of an amazing idea. This series, uh, it's listed on your outline there, the uh, the five verses in Ephesians that refer to the heavenlies. So you can look that up if you want. Uh, today we're on the, the second one. It's uh, the second reference in chapter 1 in, in verse 20. And it talks about the, the resurrection power. If you'll notice, most of these references to the heavenlies are in the first three chapters. There's one in chapter 6. So chapters uh, 4 and 5 get left out. And that's because they are the application. They are actually an essential part of this. In other words, once we know this ultimate reality in the heavenlies, what do we do about it? 
I mean, do we, you know, do we practice flying with wings and, and singing in high angelic voices? No. That's, that's not what we do. Uh, in, in chapters four and five and actually six, uh, there's a, there's a lot of practical, um, application. And so we'll be taking a look at some of that, uh, this morning. Uh, just cause I, I can't stand to just stay all theoretical. I gotta get practical. Okay, so that's the review, the heavenlies. Uh, Point number two, Paul prays for them. And that's where we're starting in today. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Um, just a couple of comments on the passage. Did you did you kind of feel like that language was a little flowery? That, that and, it, and it is. And I just wanted to mention that um, because uh, the classical Greek is a very flowery language, and in fact, it's good it's good practice in classical Greek to have run on sentences. And most of what I read there was one sentence. In the Greek, in the English, we break it up into a couple of different sentences. Uh, but in the Greek, it's just one giant run-on sentence. And in Greek, that's cool. They, they like that. <clears throat> it's probably one of the reasons why I like Paul's writing in Romans more, because the Romans were much more to the point, so he kind of was, was much more presuppositional. And it... And again, this is just a side point. It just really impressed me how Paul alters his language to suit the people. And uh, that's not something I'm nearly as good as he is. So Paul prays for them. And in particular, he prays, if if you notice here, in, um, in verse 17, that God will give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And the Spirit's capitalized here. We assume that that's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And he's praying that God will give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, he has just gotten done in the previous, in the previous section here talking about how we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, and he's the guarantee of our inheritance. So he's not saying that they don't have the Holy Spirit. What he's talking about is them growing in the Spirit in terms of wisdom and revelation. Now, what's wisdom? 
Okay, wisdom is as we apply our rational minds to what we know and come to valid conclusions. That's that's essentially wisdom. And what's what's revelation? Well, revelation is when there's those things that we can't know in and of ourselves where God reveals things to us. So really what Paul is talking about here is all wisdom, knowledge, revelation, everything that fits in that whole category. Um, There's two kinds of revelation, um, and you may or may not be familiar with this. Part of it's called general revelation. And that's when you look outside and you see God's work in nature and you say, oh my goodness, there has got to be a God. There just has to be. How else could this all happen? Um, but we don't know much about him just by looking at his creation. And that's why he gave us his word. And the, the, his creation in nature is called by theologians general revelation. His, uh, his re- revelation of himself to us in his word is called special revelation. Because God at various times and places spoke so that we could know him. So he's talking about their growing in revelation, in, in wisdom. Uh, he wants them to uh, uh, have the hearts, the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Okay, most people's hearts don't actually have eyes. What he's talking about is that in our inner being, we would be enlightened that the dark places would become light, that we would understand him. And he goes on to explain that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the saints. And then finally, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, the power is the thing that he is aiming for in this passage. He's going down through all these various aspects of what God has given us, but what he's really arriving at is this immeasurable power that he's given us. And part of what he's going to be dealing with in this passage is our misconception of what true power is. We think about power. Uh, We think about, um, like, when you go up next to a substation... And it says, you know, there's big signs about warning, high voltage. And you're kind of looking through the fence there, and all of a sudden you hear the hum, right? Mm. Are you tempted to climb the fence? <laughs> In fact, uh, this, this is a funny thing, actually. Um, the the, the uh, security people know that if you just put a hum generator in a room and a warning sign on the door, most people won't go in. It's really true. The only thing that works better is actually a radioactive sign. (laughs) And that's what we think of as power, right? Those kind of things. We, and, and we like the power to command, don't we? Uh, now some of you here are moms. And if you look down at your child and you say, stop that, do this, and the child jumps up and does that, well, first of all, of course, they could blow you over with a feather at that point. <laughs> but you think, wow, we're really, we're really connecting here. There's real power here. Um, 
And so often we think of power as that ability to command people. And funny thing, even though God actually has the power to do that, of, of all beings everywhere, he is the one that has that power. Generally speaking, he chooses not to do that. And so because of that, we misunderstand his power. We keep wanting him to come down like an avenging angel and straighten out this mess down here, right? And uh, and the, the biblical prayer is, how long, O oh Lord, how long? But it's because of his mercy. It's because of his mercy. But he does have real power that's available to us. And that's part of what we need to understand. What is this power? What is it like? So in verse 20, and now we're into point three, the resurrection power. We've talked about the, the heavenlies in an introduction to the series here. We've, I've been talking about what Paul prays for them, and now we're talking about uh, this resurrection power. Because he goes on to talk about the working of his great might, and then in verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Okay, that was a real demonstration of power. That took the the hold that the Roman Empire had over the people in it and negated that in one fell swoop. Because what Rome always had going for it is that if you didn't do what they said, they could kill you. And they were quite willing to do that. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, that made everything that Rome could do to him of no effect. This in, in, in that one act, his resurrection, Jesus demonstrated that he has power over the greatest power on earth. Um, this is this is pretty ph- phenomenal. And then Paul goes on to explain that far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age and in the age to come. So he is above all else. Now, what happens with this power? Well, what Paul talks about is that God then uses that to energize us. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the picture is of as Christ as the head and his church as the body. Now, in your daily life, if you want to get something done, if you want to apply power, how do you make that happen? Well, like, for instance, this is a nice big heavy Bible, and I would want to move it from here to there. So I would stand back, and I would focus on it really hard, and I'd go, mm-hmm. Yoda, you remember Yoda? Mm-hmm. He did it like this, kind of, didn't he? I don't know how. Anyway, and then it was over there. Do you notice how that happened? It didn't happen. If I want to move this from here to there, what do I have to do? I've got to pick it up, and i got to carry it over here. What did I just use to do that? My body. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? i got a head, I think, and I 
I, I pick this thing up and I move it and I apply power to the Bible. I, I overcome inertia and it goes from here to there. Pretty obvious, right? That's the metaphor here. That's the, the thing that Paul is using to explain how things work with God and his power and with Christ and with us. So Christ is the head. We're the body. God wants to apply his power through us. He wants to use us as his hands. Does he need us? No. He does it because he wants to. Because it's a tremendous privilege to be used by him in his work. And what he does is he makes available that same power that raised Jesus through the dead uh, to work in us. But the way that happens is a little different. We have to say, what is that power like? Now, if it was someone like me that God had chosen to send down to the earth, I would basically have lined everybody up and said, all right, from here on in, this is the way it is. You do this, you, do, you don't do that, you don't do that, and that's the way it's going to be. Anybody steps out of line, we got lightning, right? And pretty soon we'd have a bunch of people towing the line. Now, what would have happened in their hearts? They'd probably be pretty resentful, right? Their hearts wouldn't have changed. <clears throat> so God didn't pick a jerk like me. He sent his own son. And that's how he manifests his power. As uh, Paul says in, in uh, was it 2 Corinthians 12? One of the things God told Paul was that my power is made perfect in weakness. God chooses to work through weakness. It's a, to our minds, this is a contradiction in terms. How could that be? But it is not a contradiction to God. So I want to talk about how we apply this power in some of these application verses over in chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You notice a repetitive term in that passage? Yeah, it's one. He wants us to be one. How do we achieve that? Well, I've already explained how I would achieve that, right? I would just apply raw power and make everybody toe the line. It really wouldn't change people on the inside. And so what the Lord asks us to do is to work with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. So that because we have this power in us that raised Jesus from the dead, we go to other people and appeal to them in weakness and humility 
and ask them if they if 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 they would like to do that. Um, it is kind of amazing when you think about the Lord of the Universe appealing to uh, to people to follow Him. It's totally what's good for them. It's totally what's right. One day there is going to be a judgment, and those who refuse, unfortunately, will find out that that was a real bad idea. But for now, God appeals to people with patience, gentleness, humility, and asks them to become one. How often do you hear this kind of thing in real life? How often do you do you hear people saying, "Well, okay, we've really got to be united here," and uh, and so we've um, that means that basically all of you need to do things the way I want it done. People try not to say it quite that baldly, but that is what you hear. And what Paul says here is that we need to approach each other with humility and and gentleness, with patience eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In this world, if they want peace, how do they get it? (laughs) They start a war. (laughs) Is that a contradiction in terms? And we think God is a little strange. And yet that's what we do. If we want peace at home, what does Dad do? Well, my favorite tactic is to start yelling, right? Um, and then that doesn't work, so I think, well, okay, I'll be a little more subtle, and I'll just act all irritable. Um, anybody here like that irritable technique? Yeah, I, I like that one, too. Um, funny how that doesn't really produce peace, does it? So the Lord calls us to approach each other with Humility and gentleness, looking for peace. Then if we skip down to uh, to verse 15 in chapter 4, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is the, uh, a little bit further on this passage, and it's still really talking about unity and how you get it. And what he's saying here is to speak the truth in love. Now, <clears throat> most of us, when we speak the truth, doesn't really come out loving, does it? <laughs> All right, you kids, I want you to sit over here and do this. Uh, and it's... And, it's a, it's a real challenge to actually speak the truth in love. Um, most of the time, when we um, when we speak love, uh, we're not really saying the truth. Uh, Bonnie and I saw a TV show uh, recently where um, uh, the the guy you know is a guy and a girl you know, and they're in love and. Um, and because he wants his relationship to go well, he, he tells a big fat lie. So what then happened in that relationship? <laughs> she began to suspect, right? And so she's, 
you know, getting a little more suspicious, a little more suspicious. <coughs> he finally fessed up in terms of the big lie. And uh, that was the end of that relationship. Yeah, it was a sad, sad show. <coughs> we have a real challenge in speaking the truth in love. If um, And that's the key thing that we need to do. The number one failure of bosses, of supervisors in the business world is not telling their employees the truth. And it's really fascinating. You would think that if an employee is messing up, that the first thing the boss would do is go over and explain what they're doing wrong. But you know what? <clears throat> Most bosses don't want to get into it with the employees. They don't want that disagreeable disagreement. And so they, they, just, they just don't say it. They just don't say, okay, listen, you're coming in a couple minutes late every day. It's just really not going to work out. You got to start. They don't say that. What they do is they, they wait to the annual review when HR makes them say something. <laughs> And then they come down like a load of bricks. All right, your performance has been totally unacceptable all year long. Everything everywhere is totally screwed up. Now, how does that make the employee feel? Well, hopeless, right? So it's, it's just rampant in our society that we don't speak the truth in love. And if we want to see God's power manifest, that's what we actually have to do, is speak the truth in love. And then, and then finally, in verse 32 of, of chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And of all the statements in this book, that may be the most difficult to actually do. <clears throat> And doing these things, as we do these things, um, and as it says here in verse 32, uh, being kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, is a real manifestation of Christ's resurrection power. Because these are the things that actually change people. This is what God actually uses in people's hearts to change them. So we've talked about um, uh, the heavenlies here. We've talked about the, uh, the, the introduction to the book. Uh, Paul has prayed for them, asking God to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they could really understand God's power. We've talked about how the power that God has available to us is, is essentially infinite. It's, the, it's, it's all power. And then we've talked about how God wants to manifest that power through us as his body. And the way that we do that is by gentleness, kindness, meekness, patience. <clears throat> Those seem like the exact opposite of the power. And yet those are the things that have the power to really change. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, 
I'll tell two stories. <clears throat> One is, uh, uh, you know, personally in, in my relationship with Bonnie. Uh, from time to time, we have disagreements. Now, I know that none of you can imagine that. You've talked to Bonnie, and she's just such a wonderful person, and how could you, how could I be such a cad as to have a disagreement with her? <laughs> but I do. And, uh, you know, I've tried all kinds of things to, to get around those disagreements. I have tried patiently explaining in great glorious detail why she's got this little one wrong. How well did that work? <laughs> Not at all. I, I have I have explained why in this particular case I really did have to do this thing that she didn't particularly like, and you know I've got all kinds of reasons. I've got everything except a PowerPoint presentation. How well did that work? Yeah, not at all. <clears throat> you know the one thing that actually works. I was wrong. I should not have done that. Would you please forgive me? And as soon as I go in weakness, Bonnie being Bonnie, her heart melts. And yes, of course, I forgive you. And it's fantastic. I could apply all the power that I have in this relationship, right? After all, I am the papa. You remember the uh, the movie, the uh, Fiddler on the Roof? There's a whole song about the Papa. And, uh, and I could say, well, listen, Christ made me your head. You need to get a better attitude here and quit. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. When I go in humility, gently, and kindly, works every time. You know, you would think I would learn that. <laughs> you would think it would get easier. Um, and yet that, that is the truth. That is when the power of God is really manifested. When I see her heart just totally change. Because I finally did it the way God said to do it. I'll give you another example. Um, there's there's one part of the and this is uh, not not so personal. It's more of a geopolitical example. There's one part of the world where they just can never seem to get peace, right? And of course, that's a lot of places in the world. But where where is it that peace just never seems to break out? Okay, the Middle East. And you know what the issue going on there? And there's a predominant culture in the area that has no conception of forgiveness. The, the conception, the way you deal, the way you resolve with interpersonal conflict is by vengeance. Right? It's the rule of the playground. The playground. You hit me, I hit you back. You know, if, if the teacher says, why did you hit that other kid? You say, well, they hit me first. And, of course, as you go along, you start saying, well, yeah, they were thinking about they were going to hit me. <laughs> and that's what's going on in, in, uh, in that. And the few times where peace has actually happened 
is when uh, somebody has gotten the parties together and talked them into forgiving each other. And that's the only way to make things right. If someone has done a wrong to you, how can that wrong be made right? You really can't do it. You can't take back that wrong. You can't make it as though it never happened. The only thing that can be done is that that wrong can be forgiven. Now, why would you ever be willing to forgive someone who had wronged you? Well, what if you had done even greater wrong and you had been forgiven? What if the one that you had wronged asked you to forgive that person as a, as a payback? Okay, well, that works. That doesn't make the wrong not happen, but that does motivate us for forgiveness. And, of course, the one who paid the penalty for us is Jesus. And he took all of our sin and, and shame on himself, and he paid that penalty. Then we saw God's resurrection power break forth and bring him back from the dead. And God did that so that we would know that our sin was really, truly forgiven. And then he turns to me and he says, Okay, Bill, can you approach Bonnie with gentleness and humility and kindness? I would be ashamed not to. And it is to my shame that it is so hard, so hard for me to do that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to energize us with his resurrection power. Father, we come before you. You are the one who uh, has given us this tremendous power. And yet, Father, it is not the power of the world. It's the power of your Son. It's the ways and, and means by which uh, you saved us and drew us to yourself. 